um, if I've done my job this week, then I will bring to you truth that should impact your heart and the way you live. Now, if you've done your job this week, you'll be ready to hear it and receive from the Lord his word. That is not something that we generally are ready to receive. Um, in fact, I'm not always ready to bring it to you uh, as I, I struggle with my own heart. And so I want to take one quick minute before we jump into the word and into today's passage to just start over in prayer one more time, asking God to prepare our hearts, to help us to receive his truth. So pray with me once more. God, our world is um, overwhelming at times. It is confusing. It is um, uh, distracting. I confess that I don't always have a heart to seek you, to know you, to love you. We confess that as a people. And so forgive us. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear from your word this morning. Speak through me. Um, that, I, that only things that would be remembered this morning would be the truth of your word. And we pray that it would affect our hearts in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Relationships are hard. Now, if you don't think so, you either don't have any relationships because you live as a hermit, or the ones you have are very shallow because you avoid things, or you always get your way, and so people are afraid of you, so you never feel the difficulty of relationship. Everyone else that you interact with does. Those are kind of the options, right? Relationships are hard. Not all relationships are hard all the time, okay? But many of them are hard often, at least ones that are worthwhile. Think about for a second the parent that you have, or the in-law, or whoever, that just seems to never get it, right? They just don't get it. And by get it, we mean they never seem to see our perspective, or anyone else's perspective at all. They're just stuck on their own. Does anyone have anyone like that in their life? Like, <laughs> yeah, that happens. They don't ever see just how offensive they can be, or how their behavior can be hurtful. It's hard to have relationships with people who think differently and stick to that. Or think about the person that you actually like spending time with. Some, just, you know, someone you enjoy. Um, but when you hang out with them, they like to go to expensive places, and you're not quite in that position. And so there's this, like, awkward thing that just happens where you want to spend time with them, but if you do, you're going to, like, owe more money in your life than you really think is wise, and it just ends up that you're, like, you turn them down a lot. And so then there's this, like, you maybe don't have that conversation, and then you start to drift a little bit. That can get awkward, right? Relationships can be hard. Having that conversation can be hard. But I think more often than anything, think about the person that you avoid. Just think about that individual that you might just want to avoid. They said something you didn't like. They post something you don't agree with. Then maybe you even at one point got into a conflict with them. And now you're a little gun-shy about having a relationship with them because you don't want to get hurt again. Relationships are hard because maintaining relationships are hard. We let things divide us and keep us divided. And then we become content with being a divided people. Relational walls 
exist between all sorts of people. And as we learned last week, relational brokenness is a reflection of spiritual brokenness. Relational brokenness is a reflection of spiritual brokenness. And we talked about how the Jews were content and even preferred to be divided from the Gentiles. There wasn't just a feeling of division among them, an unspoken thing. No, no, it was very literal. Um, In the temple, we talked about how in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a physical wall that separated Jew from Gentile. There were, these were symbols and, and literal realities of a spiritual division between Gentile and God, but also between Gentile and Jew. And the only way to break down dividing walls in our relationships is if we move towards the person that we're divided from. Does that make sense? The only way we break down these walls is if we move towards people. That's exactly what Jesus did. It was his death that destroyed the division between God and man and man and man. His death did that. In the gospel, we see the division between God and man repaired. Okay? Jesus, loving his enemies and caring for their souls, leaves heaven and moves towards his people, literally. He pursues them. He preaches them to them. He ultimately dies for them, serving them, sacrificing for them. And Jesus overcomes the things that divides him from his enemies. But in our relationship we, with God, we tend to erect more walls. Our sin erects more walls. But God, again, because of his love, because of his grace, because of his mercy, keeps coming towards us, tearing down the dividing walls of our relationships and pursuing unity. So my point for you today, if there is one thing that I want you to hear overall today, it's this, that Jesus destroys division. Jesus destroys division. I want to pray again, and then we're going to jump further into our passage. God, we experience all of us um, division in our lives, uh, whether we're avoiding it because it's unpleasant, or because um, we're content with it, or because it's thrust upon us by people who are divisive. Whatever the case may be, we all experience it. We all experience it with you at times when we sin. So help us draw near to you. Help us see how to draw near to others today as we study your word. God, we pray that in your name. Amen. The first thing I want you to see in our passage as we go verse by verse here, I want you to see is this. Jesus establishes peace. So he came to destroy division. What did he come to establish? He came to establish peace. So look at verse 13 with me. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus brought the Gentiles. Now again, Ephesians is written primarily to Gentile Christians. He brought them who were far from God, who did not know that, you know, getting wild here. uh, He did not know that, or they did not know God. They were not raised in the culture of Yahweh. They did not know the temple. They did not know the sacrifices. They did not know the ceremonies and laws that all pointed them to God. They were far from God, not just in their souls, but just in their life. They knew nothing of God. And so God pursued those people. And those who were far off, he brought near. Then in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The peace that Jesus established extends to the relationship between Jew and Gentile. He's saying, I've made relationship 
possible for Jew and Gentile. I've made that possible. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile before God anymore. There's just Christian. He accomplished this piece specifically in one specific way. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility between them. The Jews had unrest with the Gentiles. They had broken relationship with Gentiles. They, they just didn't get along. They hated one another. We talked last week about how the, the Jews saw the Gentiles as sufficient fuel for the fires of hell. That's how one commentator described their view. They, they had hatred for one another. However, Jesus comes in and restores the relationship by giving his body to be broken. So do you see the exchange there? The hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile, Jesus destroys. He destroys hostility. It's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a play on words almost. He destroys hostility. Thus, he enters in peace. He brings peace by destruction. It's almost ironic. He destroys the, the, the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? So that's great. He came to establish peace. I see that. That's there. Jesus is our peace. How did he accomplish the peace? It's a good question. Here we go. Second point. He abolishes the law. He establishes peace by abolishing the law. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, what was it? Well, first of all, there was these Jewish customs and rituals, and there was just the simple law of God given to the Jews, okay? In keeping the laws of God, the Jewish people um, formed this, like, cultural identity. They understood themselves not just as, like, we're a geographic people, but we are the people of God. Everything we do is unto God. The way we eat, the way we clean ourselves, uh, I'm serious, like, the way they took baths, like, everything had some law associated with it. How they related to one another, how they bargained with one another, the way they did their taxes, everything had some semblance that pointed people to God and made them distinct as a people of God. Everyone else didn't have that. Therefore, they were far from God. They were far from these people who had this cultural identity as well. It separated them. It just simply separated them. Circumcision, dietary laws, laws about cleaning, the festivals, the the Ten Commandments, all of it separated Jew from Gentile. The Jews, though, were so wrapped up in that cultural identity that they despised the Gentiles for not sharing it with them. You would think, you would think, okay, you know, I see all these laws. They are pretty, like, extensive. And we're constantly going to God through the priest for having violated his laws. We can't keep them. We need God's grace. You would think that might be the natural thought, but it wasn't. The natural thought for them was we've got all these laws, we've got all these rituals, we've got all these customs, we are the chosen people, and we're better than those who weren't. The law was meant to point the Jewish people to God. However, it just pointed that, it it furthered the fact that they were better in their minds than others. There was a self-righteousness associated with their cultural identity. And Jesus comes in, And he lives a perfect life, and he lives, fulfills all the law that no one, Jew or Gentile, had ever done, making his body the sacrifice for sin. 
and he permanently fulfilled the law of God that none of us could. And when he did that, when he fulfilled the law, he removed the dividing wall. So does that make sense? You have Jews who have all these laws that they can't keep. You have Gentiles who have none of the laws that they wouldn't have been able to keep. And Jesus comes in and he says, I'm going to live the perfect life. I'm going to fulfill the law. So now it shouldn't divide you anymore. You couldn't keep it. You were never even aware of it. I fulfilled it. And now you can have relationship together. John Piper says it this way. The law was kept perfectly by Christ. And all its penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on Christ. Therefore, the law is now manifestly not the path to righteousness. Christ is. The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ. The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ, not law-keeping for righteousness. So Jew, you were raised in, in the law, and you can't keep it. But Christ came and fulfilled it perfectly, and now you look to him. Gentile, you were never aware of the law. You didn't grow up with any of the customs. You didn't understand that you were violating God's law. And now Christ came and fulfilled it for you. You look to him for your righteousness. Both people, starting from different points, ending in the same point if they turn to Christ. Jesus doesn't require Gentiles to, to come over to the Jewish customs, then to approach him that way right? No, he says things like circumcision, dietary laws, ritual laws, uh, material sacrifices, you know, the blood of the goats and, the, and lambs and pigeons, all those things. That's not necessary. We don't approach God through those things. We approach him through Jesus and his blood and his righteousness. So what was the ultimate result of abolishing the law? It was so God could create one new man. It was so God could create one new man. Verse 15, read that with me. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In fulfilling the law, Jesus' end goal, his end game, was to make Jew and Gentile one new man, the Christian. One new humanity, the follower of Christ. So now, God doesn't require these rituals to approach him, right? He just requires faith, trust in Jesus' work of already fulfilling the law and his sacrifice on the cross. So there should therefore be nothing coming between Jew and Gentile anymore. It's not the case, that's why Paul's having to write this letter. It's even the case today. But that, has, that is what Jesus has accomplished. He, his end goal was to create one new man. Jesus destroys the need to keep ceremonial laws, and he creates one new group of believers in Jesus. MacArthur, John MacArthur writes this in his commentary. For those in Christ... That means those who trust in Christ, those who believe in Christ, right? The only identity that matters is their identity in him. There is no Jewish or Gentile Christianity, black or white Christianity, male or female Christianity, or free or slave Christianity. There is only Christianity. Our one Lord has only one church. Uh, you, some of you know I coach track. 
And one of my favorite things about track, specifically um, in the last two years of being here in Jeff City, when we started a new track club, uh, is that we have diversity. It's one of the most diverse things in the city, in my opinion. Because when we walk around the city, when you go around the city, you know, you, we all know there's this subtle divide of kind of like, this is where the black people are, and this is where the white people are, and here's where the internationals are. And there's just kind of like this natural separation. And we see it. Not at my track team, though. I have black kids, white kids, Asian kids, Hispanic kids. They all love each other. They all cheer for each other. They all work hard together. They feel the same pain. It doesn't matter what their background is because they're all united around this. this we have this little family of athletes, of runners. It's what brings us together. And we don't think about what separates us. We just think about we're all working our butts off. We're all out there in the heat, sweating, working hard, running hard. And it's awesome. I, I think our track club is probably the most diverse thing in all of Jeff City, and I love it. For the church, though, our background, backgrounds also do not define us. Upper income, lower income, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. None of those things are what defines us. They are not our core identity. City boy, country boy, whatever. None of those things define us. The shared belief in God and the gospel is what brings us together, and so we are one family. Christ died specifically that we would no longer be divided from each other. We are now united as one. But not only did Christ unite us, and not only did Christ create one new family, he reconciles us to God. So he doesn't just unite us, he unites us back to him. Look at verse 16. So making peace, verse 15 and 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Skip down to verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Who's the both? Who's the we both that Paul's referring to? Jew and Gentile. Verse 16 is, is saying we together, we both have been reconciled. He's saying, we both have the same spirit. We both have the same father. Wait, wait, wait. I mean, that must have been blowing the minds of Jews because they're like, no, no, no. We're your people. They're not. No, no, no. He died for them too. They're his people, his children as well. Where before the Gentile had no access to God, now through the preaching of the gospel, he does. This is the ultimate reversal of the curse in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin, right, against God. They're removed from his presence, removed from the Garden of Eden. The greatest suffering that results from the curse is that they are removed from the presence of God. We feel that distance in our lives as well. I've talked to many of you. Uh, I feel this myself. The thing that discourages most, it's not financial stuff. That, it's not relational stuff altogether. The thing that seems to discourage people the most is that they feel far from God at times. They lack joy. They lack encouragement because they feel far from God. And that could be for various reasons. It could be because of sin. Could, could be they're just struggling just to be in the Word and, 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 and know Him through the study of His Word, to know His thoughts and what He thinks. But distance from God is the greatest sadness that any of us feel. 
Paul says now, through faith in Jesus' blood as a substitute sacrifice, access to God is restored. Relationship to God is restored. John Stott, he says this. He's another uh, pastor and commentary writer. After the abolition or the removal of the device of law and the creation of the undivided humanity, that's the Christian, came the reconciliation of both parts of the old humanity to God, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. Let me read that again. After the abolition of the device of law and the creation of the undivided humanity came, the reconciliation of both parts of the old humanity to God, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. Christ accomplishes reconciliation to people and people groups, but he establishes reconciliation and peace with us and God. He destroys hostility. This is the greatest reality of what Jesus did. You understand? This is the greatest reality. And, and in some sense, every time we experience reconciliation with each other, it's a reminder of what God's done for us in our relationship with him. And so there are times when relationships with each other are not reconciled, right? People, people um, who don't repent of sin, people who don't seek forgiveness, people who don't even um, want to be made right, that's, that is sad. However, that's not the case with God. That is not the picture. We can't let our image of broken relationship here fully define how we relate to God because it's not the case. So when someone, uh, a parent or, or someone who abused you or someone who's just a jerk, uh, <laughs> doesn't work to restore relationship with you, that does not mean that God is like that. Or that you could ever do enough to give yourself, like, deny your access, right? Because we're like that with people, with each other, right? Access denied. You know, you've offended me. And that is not the case with God. That is not the case with Christ. He has once and for all vertically given us access through his blood. Let me read to you again from MacArthur when he says this. The Greek word, and I don't, I don't love to get in the Greek and like overwhelm people with like all these deep meanings or something, but once in a while you find a word and you're like, actually that is helpful. So here MacArthur says, the Greek word for access carries the idea not of possessing access in our own right, but of being granted the right to come to God with boldness, knowing we will be welcomed that's how, he, that's how one commentator says, he said, you approach him boldly. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, um, in verse, uh, I think it's chapter 4, verse 14, says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, the key verse here. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, when we know we have wronged someone, it's hard to approach them without thinking they're going to be mad at you. you ever, have you ever experienced that, right? I mean, like, you know you did something bad. You know you did the wrong, and you're like, apprehensive about going to that person because you're thinking maybe they'll be mad at me, maybe they're going to hold a grudge, I don't know if they're going to work through it because I don't, I don't know them well enough yet. Every good, decent relationship has like a working through of difficult things. 
But the thing here is that we've sinned against God and we don't have to shrink back. We get to approach boldly because we have access. He says, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We approach God not on our merits, but on the merits of Jesus. We can approach the throne of the king as a peasant because the son of the king has gone outside of the castle, grabbed the peasants, said, forgiven, come on in. I want to introduce you to my father. He brings us. We couldn't just approach the king on our own right, be like, hey, king, what's up? Uh, strike him down, right? He's done nothing to deserve my favor. But we don't approach God that way. The son of the king has ushered us in before the presence of the king on his throne and said, he's with me. You see? Jesus reconciles us back to God. The Son of God reconciles us back to God. And the last thing we see in this passage is this, is that Jesus preaches this gospel to all people. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. To the you who were far off is the Gentiles who were not raised in the customs and laws of God. To the near is the Jewish person. And the thing Paul says is he preached to both groups. Jesus preached to both the Gentile and the Jew. For us today, we might think he preached to both the church and to those outside of the church. It would be easy, right? It would be really easy for the Jews, especially, to think that the Gentiles, they really needed saving. And this letter, it's primarily written to Gentile Christians. So, so the truth is that, um, you know, they really need it. But that's not the truth. The truth is we all need it. We all needed what Jesus accomplished. We all need him to walk us in before the throne and say he's with me. Why? Why? Is that the case? Why even have a chosen people if they're not, if they still need Jesus? Why is that the case? Because of this. Rituals were never meant to save the Jews. Hear that. The rituals were never meant to save the Jews. The law was never meant to save the Jews because they were never going to be able to keep it. The law was meant to point them to their need for God. The, 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 the rules of God, the laws of God, the moral, the ceremonial, everything is meant to point them to their need for God. So in that sense, the ceremonies, the rituals, the festivals, the, the Ten Commandments, all of it, that the Jews practiced had them closer to God, but it, it didn't ha simply have them right with God. It had them closer, but it didn't have them right with God. And so in that sense, Paul says, you who were far off and you who were near, he preached to both of you because you both needed Jesus Both needed removal of guilt for sin by what Jesus did on the cross. So, th so uh, you know, I'm trying to come up with, like, an illustration for this this weekend and this week, trying to, like, explain this idea. So, so this is the best I got, okay? If you don't like this, we'll just, we won't put this online or something. But, y you know, imagine you come to the Sunday gathering, 
and there's a large group of people here. Like, like we just blew up one Sunday, and we had like three rows reserved or something, and you had this large group of people, and maybe they were in town for like a local festival, and the festival was the All About Me Festival, okay? So that's what they're here for. And somehow they saw our sign, they're here for the All About Me Festival, it's all about me, and everybody was, congr- it was like a big festival, and they saw the sign for Karis, and they're like, oh, what's this? Maybe that's all about me too or something. And they walk on in, all, you know, 30 of them, and they just snag rows, and they're here. And, and they add their name badges, right? And they're like, I'm Johnny and with the All About Me Festival. And you're like, okay. And, and you just have this understanding immediately, just by the mere fact that they're here for that festival, that these people do not know Jesus, okay? They are far from God. And they've come in, and, and we all understand that growing up in the church and, and hearing the word of God taught to us week in, week out. These people need to hear the gospel. But then something, something starts to happen where we're like, they need to hear the gospel. And what if I started to kind of adopt that mentality like, these people need the gospel. And I, and I really just avoided preaching to you guys, and I really just focused in on them, right? As if somehow they were the only ones that needed the gospel. Just because it's overt that they're all about me doesn't mean that subtly in us, it's a, we don't think the same thing. Just because we don't throw a festival about it doesn't mean we're not inherently thinking about ourselves all the time. Do you see? So it's not just the Gentiles who were overtly far from God who needed the gospel. It was the Jew, maybe more so, who needed it because they thought they were already right with God by doing or being in a group of people day after day that was nearer to God. You and I churched and unchurched, need the gospel. Jesus understood this, and so he preached, verse 17 says, to you who were far off and to those who were near. When we think about the way we relate to people, this is my thought for you. Are we building up walls of division, or are we tearing them down in the pursuit of peace? Jesus died to break down dividing walls, but we all too often erect new walls where we shouldn't. I see today, um, all the time I see this happening, and at times even do this in my heart. You see things like different beliefs and opinions about guns posting all over Facebook, right? And it divides us. Different opinions about what we should do with refugees divides us. Different types of parenting styles, different types of politics divide us. So let me ask you this question. Don't take notes for a minute. Just let me ask you this question. Do we require people to share our politics, our positions, before they can experience peace, the peace of Christ at this church? Are only white people welcome? In your MC, do you only want people there who think the same way that you do before they're welcomed? Let me say this. Jesus didn't die to tear down dividing walls so that we could build new dividing walls. And I'm not saying we shouldn't develop opinions about things. I'm not saying we shouldn't have politics that we believe in or policies um, that we hold to. I'm saying that the love for God and for people should be reflected in those beliefs. Love for God and love for people should be reflected in our beliefs, in our posts, in our words, 
Our words should not tear people down. Our words should not build up new walls that separate people further from God. And so if you hold a belief or a set of ideas because it was the way you were raised, you may need to think through whether you've believed something for a long time that reflects the love of Jesus that he has for those people. I heard um, this week and I was, or this last week I was in St. Louis for a, a conference briefly and got to hear the uh, president of the IMB, the International Mission Board, which if you know what that is, cool. If you don't, that's fine too. Um, but basically the Southern Baptists are, they're united in this organization called the IMB and they're trying to reach international locations, right? Japan, China, wherever. And they're trying to send missionaries there and raise up people and send them out. And he, so this guy, he's a pastor. He's written a lot of great books. He's a solid guy. I respect him a lot. And he was there speaking, and he said this, and I'm paraphrasing. It saddens him that Christians today are more concerned about keeping self pro- themselves self-protected and keeping terrorism out of our country than seeing people with incredible needs reached with the gospel. The greater thing we care about seems to be our politics. The greater thing we care about seems to be our policies, our self-protection, our self-preservation. It does not seem to be the gospel going to those in need. And so are we, similar to the Jews, too busy looking down on those around us who don't share our beliefs, that we don't see them as a fellow person in desperate need of a Savior? We can do that. Forget internationally. It's just in our own city we can do that. We, we actually have a, our, our, our building, we meet here on Sundays right next to a prison. How many times, how many times could somebody be getting out after spending a night in jail, be walking down the street, <coughs> and the first thing we want to do is, are the doors locked? Are we okay? Like, does anybody ever have that feeling, that instinct? Is, is, or is our natural instinct... How can we show love to this person? You know, I'm not saying be foolish. I'm not saying do, you know, do things that are, are, are risky to the sense of, you know, hey, will you watch my kid for a minute, sir, that I've never met? I'm not saying something stupid. I'm just saying, hey, do, have we ever even thought about engaging that person or any pr- people? Are we too busy looking down on those around us who don't share our beliefs that we don't see them as a fellow person in desperate need of a Savior. I say it that way because we are desperate. We just might not look like it all the time. The Jews didn't look like it all the time. Is your Facebook account, I'm just going to rattle off some questions. Is your Facebook account defined by what you are against or by your love for Jesus and your desire to see people come to him for salvation? That's a big one, right? Is your Twitter account, whatever, you, Facebook feeds, all those things, what do those represent about you? Do you have a perspective that Jesus died for all people and I'm called to love all people? Or are you building up walls of who you will love and people know who you accept and love and they also know who you do not? We need to refocus our energies on who Jesus is, on who Jesus is, on what he's done if we're going to be unified. So here's final questions for you. Who are you currently divided from? What obligations or rules or laws do you have them have to keep to be friends with you? I will not be friends with somebody who believes this or does this or thinks this way. What kind of those types of ideas? In what way can you pursue them as Jesus pursued you when you were his enemy? 
So let me close with this statement from Don Carson. Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common ancestry, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of the sort. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. God, all of us want naturally to protect ourselves, to define people in categories of safe and unsafe, and make ourselves um, avoid the unsafe. But that's not what you did. That's not what we see in the gospel. We see you making yourself vulnerable. We see you loving your enemies. We see you pursuing peace to the very people who pursued hatred and, and were your enemies. Us. And so, God, the gospel should transform the way we think and transform the way we live and transform the way we love. And so, God, cause the gospel today to make us think more deeply. Where are we not loving people the way you love people? And transform us. Convict us and reshape us into one new family. God, we pray that in your name. Amen.